If you have your Bibles or scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 20. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 20. We wrapped up chapter 19 in our journey through Luke's Gospel that we started about two years ago this month. And we will be in verses 1 through 8 in our time together this morning. 1 through 8. It'll be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Luke 20, verses 1 through 8, as we uh, have been journeying since the end of chapter 9 to Jerusalem, where Jesus has set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and to uh, suffer and die on behalf of wayward humanity. We have made it to Jerusalem, and that's where we look in today. If you got it, say, I got it. Let's read this together. The Holy Spirit says through a doctor named Luke, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who it is that gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. This is God's word. May God write his eternal truths on all of our hearts. What is the cost of lies? It is not that we will mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we no longer recognize the truth at all. This is the opening line of the critically acclaimed 2019 HBO miniseries entitled Chernobyl which, of course, follows the events surrounding the 1986 nuclear reactor explosion known as the Chernobyl disaster in what is now modern-day Ukraine. When you and I typically watch any sort of movie or TV show or miniseries, right, there's a discernible villain, yes? Discernible villain, usually one person who acts as a foil for the main antagonist, the hero of the story. In this show, though, The villain is not a particular person, but the presence of an evil system, a bureaucracy determined to propound a politically convenient narrative no matter the risk or cost to those kept in the dark. Trevin Wax wrote an excellent article in the miniseries about the miniseries at the Gospel Coalition. I want to read you some of what he says. He says, the Chernobyl disaster reminds us that it is better to accept a hard but unpopular truth than to embrace a soft but seductive lie. When the truth offends, we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it is even there, the protagonist says in Chernobyl. But it is still there. The truth doesn't care about our needs and wants. It will lie in wait for all time. No culture, he says, is immune to the temptation to spread little lies in service of a great cause to produce misinformation as long as it leads to victory for a particular movement or party. But every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth, he says. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. And so, he continues, 
in a time when lies and falsehoods radiate from the cultural explosion produced by philosophical denials of truth, when politicians and presidents and parties unashamedly and wantonly spread falsehood in service of their own agendas, when euphemistic jargon fills articles and newscasts in order to suppress the reality of injustice, when Christians pass along reports that they are fairly confident contain untruths or misrepresentations but don't care as long as it reinforces their preferred narrative, and when falsehood upon falsehood pile up higher and higher to the point that entire segments of society are dedicated to the denial of biological or scientific realities, we must look not back to Chernobyl, but to God's word and his people until we are able to reclaim a courageous commitment to the truth and refuse to surrender to any lie. Otherwise, we may forget the truth altogether. End quote. Sometimes, even if the truth stares us right in the face, we decide the truth costs too much. So we latch on to something else. Anything else that will be more comfortable. You know, in the final episode of Chernobyl, there's a scene where a Communist Party official urges a scientist to go along with the official state story, which is filled with convenient lies. He insists that there's no need for truth to get out and says, we have a hero, we have our villains, we have our truth. That's another thing we do, isn't it? We decide the lie isn't a lie per se, we just call it what? Our truth. This is my truth. The truth can be costly. The truth can cause us to admit things we would rather not admit. The truth makes us submit to a reality that we're not sure we want. And if we're serving a greater cause, that raises the stakes all the more, making convenient lies easier to produce and to cling to. That was the struggle of the government in Chernobyl, and it is the struggle of the religious leaders in our text this morning. The question for them, as we will see, is essentially this. Is the truth of who Jesus is, a truth that is staring them right in the face, worth the cost it would take to accept and admit? The looming issue here is the authority of Jesus. Hasn't that been the issue all along? That's the issue for the religious leaders. That's the issue for you and me and all people. Who is Jesus? What authority does he possess? And when you come to the only reasonable conclusion that you can to those questions, what will you do with it? How will you respond? Because you must respond, and you will. Now, before we move any further along in the text, we have to address authority itself, because we hear the word authority and we tense up, don't we? Authority in our highly individualized context is a four-letter word. The very idea of external authority makes us uncomfortable. Authority outside of ourselves, we say, should be rejected, even to the point of rejecting God's authority, which is the essence of sin. G.I. Packer put it well when he said, authority is a word that makes most people think of law and order, direction and restraint, command and control, dominance and submission, respect and obedience. How, I wonder, do we react to such ideas? Have they any place in your vision of life that is good and sweet? If so, you are unusual. One tragedy of our times is that having these associations, authority has become almost a dirty word in the Western world. While opposition to authority in schools, families, and society generally is cheerfully accepted as something that is at least harmless and perhaps rather fine. We live in a culture that prizes individualism and autonomy. Am I wrong? 
Those are the highest goods to us. Like William Ernest Henley wrote in his poem, Invictus, all those years ago, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll, I am the master of my fate. What? I am the captain of my soul. When freedom is, in our minds, the highest good, that anything that threatens to infringe on that is a terror. All of us have grown up in generations that have cast off authority in one way or another. You realize this? Before we get that uh, kids these days syndrome, you guys did it too, okay? Whatever generation you did. Because authority can be terribly stifling, yes? Especially to a people like us who live in a culture that has, since its founding, cast off authoritarianism in favor of self-governance. But that's not the only reason why we are averse to authority, is it? Who among us hasn't seen authority abused at one point or another? I mean, honestly, wasn't it Lord Acton who said power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Great men, he said, are almost always bad men. And wasn't he at least partially correct when he said this? Who among us, let's just be honest, hasn't seen authority abused either by lying and corrupt politicians, it's more strange when they tell the truth, or in the homes, or in churches, or in work environments. Who among us hasn't seen that or experienced it? Who hasn't seen or experienced stories of sinful people using abusing power and authority? It's no wonder we don't like it. And so, with this anti-authority written on our cultured hearts, and with our experience with people truly abusing authority, suspicion of authority, it just makes sense. So then we conclude that we will be our own authorities, and we will reject Submission to anything outside of ourselves, whether it be people or even institutions that used to have some sort of sway and authority in our culture, like churches. But now here's the thing, okay? You cannot go through life without something or someone being an authority to you. It's kind of like worship, right? No one is actually a non-worshipper. You know this? You don't don't choose not to worship. You choose what to worship, but you will worship something. Something is going to be an authority in your life. And I think we know this, which is why we tend to surround ourselves with people who are just like us, because they won't push back, they won't challenge, they'll simply affirm. They'll still be an authority, they'll influence us, but they'll do it in a way that we're most comfortable with. We like that sort of tribalism, don't we? Uh, And what is tribalism if not, as David Brooks says, community for lonely narcissists? So what, what will it do for us to have authorities that influence us and hold sway over us and even command us that amount to nothing more than our peer groups? What will that do for us? Well, not much, right? The other thing, besides the fact that we all have authorities external to us influencing us and the fact that true autonomy is a lie, is that we also prescribe the wrong medicine to the problem of bad authority, don't we? See, authority and authoritarianism are not the same, are they? But, but we often conflate the two. Authoritarianism is authority corrupted. Authoritarianism is evil, antisocial, anti-human, and ultimately anti-God. So what's the cure? And we think the very real problem of bad and abusive authority is the flight of the extreme of no authority. Is that the answer? Is the answer to bad authority no authority? Is that even possible? The answer to bad authority is good authority, isn't it? So if we all submit to an authority of some kind, and if we can't be our own authority, then the question we all have to answer is this. 
Who or what is the ultimate authority in my life? How would you answer that in your heart at this moment, in all honesty? Who is the loudest voice in my mind and my heart? From whence do I derive meaning, purpose, and value? What authority do I allow to drive my existence? If Jesus is who Luke tells us he is, if all the claims about him are true, then what will we do? How will we react? How will that influence our lives? Shouldn't it? The sorts of claims Jesus is making is as one who has not just some authority, but how much of it? All of it. This is why C.S. Lewis gave us his famous trilemma. Do you know his trilemma? He said if someone showed up making the sorts of claims that Jesus did, you couldn't just call him a great moral teacher as some people do. You make the claims Jesus did, you have to conclude that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he said he was, which is God shown up in the flesh, Lord of all things. Now, when Jesus walked up to his disciples after his resurrection, and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What's left, by the way? Was he telling the truth or not? Was he lying, or does he really possess all authority that is possible to possess? And shouldn't that change things for us? You have to answer that. If you conclude that he's telling the truth, then that has to alter your life, doesn't it? You don't put the cosmic Lord on the peripheries if you believe what he said was true. See, in the religious leaders here in our text, we have the wrong approach to Jesus' authority, don't we? And we have these leaders as an example of bad authority. For them, you know, it doesn't really matter what Jesus says here to their question, does it? Does it matter how Jesus answers? They don't want the real answer because they can't handle the real answer. You know, it's like the most famous scene from the movie, good, A Few Good Men. Right? You guys know that movie? The religious leaders think they want the truth, but what? They can't handle the truth. Luke tells us that after Jesus had ridden on a donkey toward Jerusalem and wept over the city and announced the closing of the temple, that he continually returned to the temple where he taught and preached the gospel, the good news about himself. So while he's doing so, he's in the temple precinct, a delegation of these religious leaders approached him. Here we have, what's the text say? Some chief priests, some scribes, and some elders, okay? And they have a question. And so what we have here is a smaller group that represents a larger group that's called the Sanhedrin. You probably heard that, that word before, right? These are the blue bloods of the religious community in the nation. And this smaller group comes up as a representation of the Sanhedrin, and they ask Jesus a question. And we know why they're doing this, don't we? Our text last week concluded with, you can just look up in your text at the end of chapter 19 and 47 48, telling us that after Jesus did what he did in the temple, this same group decided that they should try to destroy Jesus. Right? He was upsetting the apple cart too much. Whereas Jesus used to be an irritant that they tried to ignore. Now he's a threat that has to be eliminated, right? In a few days, 
We're in Holy Week, right? In a few days, when Jesus stands before Pilate, even Pilate has the insight to know the reason the religious leaders want Jesus dead is because they're envious of him. Pilate asks, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And Mark adds this in his gospel. For he, Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Their envy is driving them to get Jesus out of the way. So now we have them not just plotting, right, to have Jesus eliminated, but they're actively attempting to get Jesus to slip up so that they got pounced and have him killed. Or even better, have the people turn on him, uh, rather than, verse 48 of chapter 19, hanging on his every word. So they say to Jesus, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. What things? Well, things like riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? They knew their Bibles. They knew the prophet Zechariah said that the Messiah would ride in on a donkey. Can this man really think he's the Messiah? You know, things like going into the temple, flipping tables, things like going to the temple and proclaiming in the tradition of the prophet that they have become a safe haven for the corrupt, things like declaring the temple's end. Who does he think he is? Who is he to do and say the kinds of things that he's doing and saying? That's what they're asking. These guys thought, basically, that the temple was theirs. They had a monopoly on religious power and authority in the nation. So they're asking, who is this credentialless rabbi from Nazareth that he thinks he could do and say what he's doing and saying? We didn't approve this. We didn't give him a license to act in this manner. So their question is tantamount to basically, who do you think you are? You ever ask that about somebody? It's not them seeking information, though, is it? They don't want the answer. The questions posed by Jesus' adversaries are not designed to elicit any information, but only to embarrass Jesus and hopefully expose him as a fraud. In other words, these guys, they're not seeking the truth, are they? They've already decided who Jesus is. They decide that Jesus' won't, Jesus's answer won't really matter to them personally. Nothing in their heart will change based on what Jesus says. And I wonder, is there a lesson here for us, do you think? The religious leaders were know-it-alls, weren't they? They didn't want the truth. Do we? You agree with me on this, yes? When the word of God is unleashed and received, it does something beautiful and unique, doesn't it? It has the power to both confront and comfort. It pierces and it binds up. Only if we'll allow it. When you come to this place Sunday by Sunday, I wonder if you come expecting the word to confront and comfort your heart. Do you come ready for Scripture to make you uncomfortable and to challenge you and to encourage you? Or do you come with a heart closed off to what God's Word has for you? Have you a settled disposition that says that you know what you need to know and you've grown as you need to grow, and therefore the Word has little to say to you? Have you decided what the Word will say before it has even been read or proclaimed? Do you want truth? Or do you want a version of it that is more palatable? The kind that doesn't call you to change, doesn't call you on your sin, doesn't spur you to costly obedience. 
when you come to this place, does the Word of God act as an authority that assaults your heart and changes you? Or do you sit passively and listen only not to hear and thus leave unchanged and unaffected and unmoved? Are we all in danger of developing hard hearts? All of us? Or are we not all in danger of sort of comfortable religiosity? That causes us to conclude that we've sort of peaked right, in our growth and knowledge. Is not the constant danger of a comfort-obsessed culture like ours to be averse to being corrected and rebuked and confronted, the very things we are told the Word of God does when received by a humble heart open to such things? Has your heart, my friend, grown cold to the Word? You know, when I lived in Alaska... It was about this time of the year that I could expect to go out to my car every morning, and you know what I'd see on it? A layer of ice on the windshield. Every morning. I knew that when I came out to my car from basically October to spring, that there would be ice on all the windows, and therefore I'd have, need to plan a little extra time, right, to get my vehicle warm, to use the tools I had to scrape uh, the ice off with. We can expect living in a fallen world Living in a culture like ours, with its individualism and love for autonomy, its idea that each person decides what's true and right for themselves, and that anything that says different is freedom-hating tyrant that must be resisted, we can expect, in a context like that, to wake up every morning with a new layer of frost on our hearts. Our world is like a perpetual winter, and unless we prepare and expect the Word to do its work in our hearts, they will remain icy, and we will remain unchanged. I mean, the Word should make us uncomfortable, right? Like, shouldn't it convict and comfort? If it's the breathed-out Word of God, if it's without error, if it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, shouldn't it challenge us? Fallen people like us? Shouldn't it rearrange our priorities and jack up our categories? Shouldn't it act as a mirror for us? Hard and icy hearts are the result of a, of a posture of pride that says, like the religious leaders, I already know it all, and I've grown enough. No repenting to do, no change is needed. I don't want the truth, I want to remain as I am. Would we have that posture? Reformer Martin Luther said the Holy Scriptures require a humble reader who shows reverence and fear towards the Word of God and constantly says, teach me, teach me, teach me. The Spirit resists the proud. The religious leaders are the proud, aren't they? And that's why they can't see the truth right in front of them. They don't want to know who Jesus is really because then they'd actually have to take action that they wouldn't be caught dead doing, namely bowing before him as cosmic Lord. Who Jesus is is a settled matter to religious leaders, and they only want him out of the way. So they ask him this goofy question that they think they're so clever that coming up with, as if Jesus is going to fall right into this obvious trap. But Jesus is no fool, is he? He knows exactly what these fellows are trying to do. So Jesus says this, I'll answer your question. Answer mine first. Was the baptism of John from heaven? Or from man. Now, on the surface, this might seem like an evasion of the religious leader's question, but really, it's an attempt to raise the stakes. And on top of that, 
Do you see? The answer to Jesus' question will be the answer to the religious leaders' one. Now, the brilliance of this is that the religious leaders are trying to set a trap for Jesus, but they're going to end up getting caught in their own trap, aren't they? I don't know if the name Robert Watson Watt is familiar to any of you, but he was a Scottish man who invented the radar. So he's the one you silently curse under your breath when you get a speeding ticket by Ben. Now you have a, now you have a name to put to your silent cursing, okay? Robert Watson Watt, okay? But his invention was not exactly designed for that, it was to, it contributed to the Allies winning World War II because his radar would allow the Allies to detect incoming aircraft from further back so that they could have time to prepare their defenses and shoot those planes down. Well, you know, years after the war ended, Watson Watt was driving in Canada and he was caught by police radar and he was given a speeding ticket. So his own invention was used on him. Surely unbeknownst to the police officer, he didn't know he was pulling over the inventor of radar, right? And then Watson wrote a, a tongue-in-cheek poem that went like this. He said, Pity Sir Watson Watt, strange target of this radar plot, and thus, with others I can mention, the victim of his own invention. His magical all-seeing eye enabled cloud-bound planes to fly, but now, by some ironic twist, it spots the speeding motorist. The trap the religious leaders think they're going to catch Jesus in is the very one that they will spring and get caught in, like our poor friend Watson Watt. They will become victims of their own invention. Jesus answers their question in such a way that will expose their hearts, you see. So why is this question so important that Jesus asks, and why is it one that the religious leaders end up giving such a lame answer to? Let's answer the latter one first. Why do the religious leaders give the answer that they do? Here's the short answer. Okay, you ready? Because they're cowards. Okay? They're afraid of the crowd's response to Jesus' either or. Jesus' question is brilliant because there's no good answer that the religious leaders could give. They all know who John the Baptist is, right? who he was. Everyone did. They knew he was out there by the Jordan. You guys know John the Baptist. Looking like a wild man with the camel hair, eating the locusts, right? preaching repentance and telling people to get ready for the Messiah. They knew that John didn't have much for the religious leaders either, right? You might remember that when he saw them approaching in the distance, he asked, brood of vipers who warned you of the wrath to come. They knew John was someone who was not like them in that he was willing to call out the powers in government for their wretched ethics, which of course would be an end up costing John his head. They also know that the people believed John to be a prophet sent from God, and so they held him in high regard. So when Jesus asks, was John's baptism from heaven or men, they either have to say it was from heaven, admitting that he was from God, and thus admitting they ignored God's messenger. If they said it was from God, Jesus would ask, well, why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you repent? Why didn't you listen to what he said about me? And since John and Jesus were connected with, so connected with John being Jesus' forerunner, that means they'd have to acknowledge that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, and they should have been listening to him all along. So this, this option's no good. But if they say his baptism was from men, i.e. he was just some false prophet baptizing people for no reason, then the people would turn against the religious leaders because, as noted, John was seen as a true prophet by the people. So what do they do? 
it's actually kind of a humorous scene, isn't it? You just picture it. These religious leaders arrogantly strutting up to Jesus, thinking, oh, we're going to get him. Aren't we so brilliant? And then he asked them this simple question, and they go, uh, can you just, uh, just give us a second, okay? And they go off in the corner in this unholy huddle, and they whisper about their options, putting their thick skulls together, and they come up with, we, uh, we don't know. But the fact that they needed this private conference before they answered tell us everything we need to know, doesn't it? Which is that they aren't after the truth, but after what will play to the opinion of the populace. You see? They care about the consequences more than the truth. Their answer is driven by strategy. Now, we have in here, in the religious leaders, a negative example of what to do when you have a chance to speak for the truth when there are consequences to doing so. They say they want to know. That's a lie. It isn't that they don't, they didn't know, it was that they were unwilling to know. The things that make for peace was hidden from their eyes through their own stubbornness. We have someone who could speak for the truth of the gospel when it is costly and they decide it costs too much to see and speak and stand for the truth. Now, my Christian friend, can I ask you, you know, you live in a fallen world, don't you, my Christian friend? Are you a sojourner and a stranger? Yes. This is not your home. You know this, right? And since it's fallen, it's wicked. And since it's not your home, since you advocate for a better country and a better kingdom, won't there be times in your life that you will be faced with this choice? Speak up for the truth of Jesus or remain silent because it's too costly. Won't you be faced with that choice inevitably? If everything I just said was true, which it is. In such circumstances, do you, will you, speak and believe what is true over what is popular? When you are around your unbelieving peers, students, do you speak up for Jesus or do you keep your association to him to yourself? You reject what you know is right because it might cost something in the eyes of your peers. When you, adults, are around your unbelieving peers, coworkers, neighbors, friends, family members, do you speak up about Jesus or do you remain silent? Do you speak the truth in love to those headed for destruction and languishing in sin or do you keep it to yourself because it might cost you their approval or their friendship or the benefits they might offer? You hold the truth in because you fear rejection of people. I think we could ask it another way, can't we? Who do you fear? Do you fear man or do you fear God? We must stop being enslaved to what other people think of us. We must stop keeping our following of Jesus in the realm of the respectable in the eyes of the unbelievers around us. As long as we keep our Christianity, and maybe this is why you never had to pay the price, as long as we keep our Christianity nice and tidy and respectable, we will have few problems in this world. But what if we speak when we know we ought to for the truth of the gospel to a hostile world? The ordinary Christian should be contrasted with this relig these religious leaders in this fact the Christian ought to be willing to lose their life for the truth of Jesus. 
You know, it was 363 years ago to this day that a man named John Bunyan was arrested for preaching the gospel. And when he stood before the magistrate at his trial, he was told, all you have to do is sign this piece of paper agreeing that you just stop preaching the gospel. You'd be free to go. Stop preaching the gospel. The judge did his very best. You can even read the transcript of his trial online. He did his best to get Bunyan to agree that he was wrong for preaching it. And if he admitted he was wrong, he stopped preaching. Go be an ordinary citizen living a quiet and respectable life of freedom with your family. At one point, the judge said this, I do not wish to send you to prison, Mr. Bunyan. I am aware of the poverty of your family, and I believe you have a little daughter who unfortunately was born blind. Is this not so? Bunyan said, that is true. And then he said this, my calling to preach the gospel is from God, and he alone can make me discontinue what he has appointed me to do. As I have had no word from him to that effect, I must continue to preach, and I shall continued to preach, and he went to prison for 12 years. What would you do in that situation, I wonder? Isn't it a small thing to to cease proclaiming the gospel and just live a a quiet, respectable, comfortable life? It's a small thing. Uh, We don't face threats of imprisonment, do we? But do we fear what people might think of us or how they might treat us if we spoke up for Jesus when we knew we should? I mean, we really don't need to have great courage to do this or even great faith to be bold enough to live for and obey and proclaim Christ. Why? Because who is it that has all authority in the universe again? Who is it that ensures all bad things work together for those who are his, even the things we perceive as bad? Who holds all things together with the word of his power? This is why Jesus' question is so important. Don't you see? Why does it matter if from whence John's baptism came? Why does that matter? Let's think back, okay? John is at the Jordan. He's preaching repentance. He's forerunning the Messiah. Like all the prophets said that that he would do. And like the angel told his father he would do. And here comes Jesus. and, And John sees him in the distance and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus gets baptized in the water and is baptized by John. And then what happens immediately? The heavens open. Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And a voice from heaven proclaims that this is the beloved son of the father in whom he is well pleased and that the people need to listen to him. So what do we have in John's baptism? We have John's baptism being from heaven because we see that at Jesus' baptism by John, the father And the Holy Spirit proclaimed that Jesus is the anointed one who possesses the authority of God. That's why the question Jesus asks is so important. The authority with which Jesus acts, do you realize this, my friend, are as God's servant derives from his declaration and empowerment as God's son at his baptism. And so when the religious leaders ask, by whose authority? The answer is one they don't want because the answer is, by God's authority, which spells trouble for those who would oppose him, doesn't it? The religious leaders don't see because they refuse to see. They don't want to see. They're fully content being blind to who Jesus is, so they don't recognize that Jesus' authority is the authority of the divine. And that to reject Jesus is to reject God. 
When Jesus speaks, it's God speaking. When Jesus declares, it's God declaring. When Jesus acts, it's God acting. Therefore, to deny Jesus' authority is to deny God's authority. They don't see it. I wonder, do you? The conclusion we must come to, based on all the evidence, is that Jesus is God in the flesh and that his authority surpasses all authority that there is in heaven or on earth. And I think, don't you, this is the best news there is. It's not the best news there is. Jesus having full authority, isn't it good news in a world like ours that is full of pain and hardship and struggle and disease that is not being held together by a bunch of atoms bumping into each other randomly, but is upheld by a nail-scarred hand of the cosmic Christ who will ensure that not even a sigh from one he loves will pass his ears unvindicated. Isn't it good news to know that the sovereign God of all things is the self-same Christ who entered our mess and showed the love of God in the greatest move of history, offering grace and mercy to rebels so that we could truly say that we have a true and better high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. This means, my friend, that no pain is ultimately meaningless. Isn't that good news? And that even if in our trials that come to us, they come to us through the loving hand of a God who has equipped us to leverage even our sorrows for our good and his glory. Isn't that good news? Is this Jesus, possessor of all authority, worthy then of your trust? Can't we rest in his sovereignty? You know, Elizabeth Elliot was someone acquainted with hardship. Her husband Jim was brutally killed by the very people he went to reach with the gospel. And as she was thinking back over her life, the death of not one but two husbands and the countless tragedies and troubles that she experienced, she wrote this. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he's up to. We could put our heads on the pillow of Jesus' authority over all things every night and rest because he holds all things together. That's good news. Have you ever heard of better news than that? If Jesus is indeed one who possesses all authority, the one who could ride into Jerusalem as the promised king, the one who could declare cessation of the temple activities for all time, then he must not merely be acknowledged as Lord. He is one who must be submitted to as well. This is the question that's been looming since the start, right? What will you do in light of the authority of Christ? Will you submit to him as ruling Lord, or will you reject him and find some other authority to rule your life? Those are the only choices there are. The, the religious leaders may be cowards, but even in their lack of choice was a choice to reject Jesus. There's no fence sitting here. They, they, they weren't going to submit to him for anything. They didn't really care if he was the Messiah. They, they weren't going to follow him. That was their choice. What is yours? If Jesus is your Savior, he must be your Lord. And if he is your Lord, that means he must occupy the ruling center of your life. Is this true for you? Ask in your heart, who are you obeying most in your life? 
It's someone. It's something. Something is controlling and motivating and commanding you, telling you what to prize and cherish, telling you how to spend your time and energy, telling you where your comfort is found, telling you what to obey, telling you where salvation can be procured. So what or who is it for you? Friend, this is the basic question. Is Jesus Lord or not? If he is, then you must bow your knee to him. You must make him the center of your existence. You must give him your full allegiance. You must obey him. Some of you are trying to have it both ways. Some of you want to say Jesus is your Lord, but you've put him on the fringes and peripheries of your life. Some of you want to have Jesus' authority only over one part or segment of your life. You've segmented your existence out to say, I'll rule this and I'll rule that. Jesus, you can have this little area over here. As if your life were a house and there are rooms that are off limits to guests, and Jesus is, quite frankly, just a guest. But if Jesus is who he says he is, he must be the ruler of every single aspect of your life. Nothing off limits to his rule. And he allows no segmentation. Wasn't it Hudson Taylor who famously said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Some of you want to say Jesus is your Lord, but you won't allow his word to confront or challenge or change you. Don't you see that this can't be so? How could that be so? How could you just be Lord and not your ultimate authority? You know what we've done, I'm afraid, is created Jesus in our image. Have we done that? But David Platt, wasn't he right? When he said that we've molded Jesus into a nice, middle-class American Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, who would never call us to give away everything we have, a Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all of our affection, a Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that doesn't infringe on our comforts because, after all, he loves us just the way we are, a Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether, a Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Have we done that? Is it possible that you've done that, my friend? You don't need a Jesus you've created and you're comfortable with who will never interfere with your life or ask you to die to yourself or ask you to give up your idols or slay sin. That's no Jesus. That's no God. That's a deified version of yourself. That's just a mirror. You need the real Jesus. And the real Jesus is one with all authority, and in him is found peace and freedom and meaning, but only in submission to him. You know, after C.S. Lewis's wife died, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And as he was wrestling with his sorrow, he said he could look at a photo of his late wife. But now that she was gone, he said, it's like the photo has become a snare, a horror, an obstacle, because it makes him long for her all the more. He said, I can't replace her with a picture. The photo isn't her. It's not the real thing, he said. And he wanted the real thing again. And he used that to speak of Christ, saying, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. Can we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation, he says, is a supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. We need the real Jesus, and we can have him, but we must take him on his terms. 
not on ours. Right? If he has all authority as cosmic king, then we can't come up to him negotiating terms. We have nothing to negotiate with. We can't come up to him and say, this cosmic Christ and say, I'll obey you if. But instead, we have to bend knee and say, command me, my Lord. You remember what is being said here, right? And that looms over this next week of Jesus' life. Jesus is king, yes. He has all authority, yes. But he's king with authority on a cross. He's the king, the possessor of all authority, who thought it worth you worth enough that he would come and die for you and he would take on the wrath of God that you stored up from rejecting God's authority, which is the essence of sin and rebellion. Tim Keller said, if, we were only, if he were only king on a throne, you'd submit to him just because you have to. But he's a king who went to a cross for you. Therefore, you could submit to him out of love and trust. This means coming to him, not negotiating, but saying, Lord, what you ask, I will do. Whatever you send, I will accept. God gave himself utter, utterly for you. How could you not give yourself utterly to him? Now, how does Jesus respond to the religious leader's lame dodge? They say, we don't know. So Jesus says, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. In other words, you won't answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. One commentator said, when victory is no longer in sight, they calculate how to minimize their losses by some suspending judgment. That is an evasion, but their evasion is accorded a measure of respect by Jesus. Listen, this is an important one you want to remember. To those unwilling to commit themselves, he commits not himself. Do you see? They won't commit to him, so he won't commit to them. So it is in conversion, in, in this conversation, so it is in salvation. To those who will commit themselves fully to Jesus, he will commit himself fully to them. If only their faith was as small as a mustard seed, Jesus would have responded with, truly I tell you. But they have no faith at all, so he responds, neither will I tell you. I wonder, friend, have you committed yourself to him? Some of you haven't. And it's because you don't want him to be the authority in your life. You quite like fancying yourself as your own authority. But the truth is, other things are actually ruling over you, and you're afraid to let them go as lords of your life. You think you're free that way, but you're actually in bondage to those things. Would you see Jesus offering to loose your bonds? Would you see that freedom is actually found in him, in obedience to him, in the right restrictions, not in the absence of them. Now, some of you were at one time quite zealous for the Lord. You loved his word. You let it do its work in your heart. You were convicted and comforted by it. You were challenged and surprised by it. You submitted to Christ and pursued obedience. But now you've sort of slipped into a life of religious ritual and you've allowed your heart to be frozen over. Some of you are coasting through religion. Now obedience isn't really a high priority. Now the Bible doesn't have much to say to you at all. You know, some of you want Jesus, but not his authority. You say you follow him, you say you love him, you say you know him, but he doesn't motivate anything you do. Obedience is something you, quite frankly, could take or leave. Jesus has been pushed to the fringes of your life. He's been edged out by all these other things you have going on. Maybe when life isn't so busy, you'll have more time for him. Maybe at some point you'll read your Bible more. 
Maybe at some point you'll go on that mission trip. Maybe at some point you'll make church more of a priority. Maybe at some point, maybe at some point, maybe at some point, but some point keeps getting pushed further and further and further back. Some of you have faith, but it's weak and trembling. You're pursuing obedience. You really are trying, but you're struggling. Life is hard. Setbacks come. It doesn't seem like you're gaining many victories. You want Jesus' authority, but man, does it feel like you're not making any progress. Friend, the same word that convicts comforts, doesn't it? Do you have small faith? Are you pursuing Christ? Are you striving? Then keep plotting. A mustard seed faith is all that is needed. Christ has you, and his grip on you is what matters the most. I wonder, did one of those postures describe you? I bet at least one of them did. How will you respond then? Has the word done its work today and shown you the beauty and authority of this cosmic Christ? 